0: Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this.
1: Dr. Koontz, behind by a week at the moment, your transition, and we like to record ahead anyway, it puts us so we can't exactly respond to the news in real time. So this week, as we're recording, this is Tuesday, the 7th of June, Uh, we are still two days behind where my question about the G7 wargaming of monkeypox in (laughs) May leading to a June outbreak will be what most people get to hear about, and they won't hear about this conversation until what would that be the 16th so yeah. but, but here on the the 7th of june we've seen in the last 24 hours the cdc has updated its uh its warning to a level two from level one on monkeypox. they have recommended that travelers on airplanes wear masks to prevent the spread of monkeypox, and they have deleted that recommendation from their <sighs> website as well after it has gone you know, kind of virally haha public that they were making this recommendation. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Reuters Health is reporting biotechnology company Bavarian Nordic has sold monkeypox vaccines to Canada and that there are other uh, interested governments lining up to buy uh, monkeypox vaccines at the moment. So again, uh, the G7 war game predicted that sometime between, I don't know, three or four days ago and a week and a half from right now, say when this episode going to come out, uh, we should see uh, the IMF, WEF, Evil Arch plan to run the world through pandemics through the WHO, which actually the African countries blocked the treaty, but all that's supposed to be coming to play now or... Or it's all just a story. Um, and we should really focus on things that that matter more that are real, like, say, the rising gas price uh, just past five bucks here in Rockford, uh, which, of course, will impact uh, the food costs and all this. And that you mentioned last week that that was your, your bigger concern is right. food costs. So yeah. I'm just curious, you know, where are you at on this? Are you watching this right now? What can we tell our listeners in the future that will be any value to them? Yeah.
0: And and the not being in real time thing is, at least on my part, um, semi-purposeful because I think that a major part of people's problem is their reaction to push notifications, literal or figurative. So in real time, I am happy to say that the messaging that I'm hearing about monkeypox, even from sources like Johns Hopkins Public Health, they have a podcast if you're interested so you can get sort of the official take on things, is that monkeypox is not as serious as COVID. I mean, the, the, the comparisons are explicit. And so what I, what I think is happening is that monkeypox will be something like a lot of other situations about which we've perhaps forgotten. A long time ago, we brought up the swine flu epidemic during the Ford administration in the mid-1970s. President Ford was vaccinated on evening television during the news, right? That specific program, not that channel. And after that, after some rate of vaccination or case numbers, they basically gave up on that. That's what I think will happen with monkeypox, that it will become perhaps standard, Horribly, in the same way that vaccination of children for almost entirely sexually transmitted diseases limited to specific, very promiscuous demographics. I'm not just using that as a euphemism for our our Pride Month friends, but (laughs) promiscuous people of, of all tastes. Our children are, as a standard CDC recommendation, vaccinated against things that, unless they engage in some of the most absolutely depraved sexual behavior, they will never even risk getting. Monkeypox, I think, will become something like that in that its origin is exotic and due almost entirely to extremely risky behavior. And it, it cannot be aerosolized the way COVID can. So that's a problem that we talked about last week where it's simply harder to push this. Um, that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means I think it's relatively unlikely, and that it's far likelier that you would take one of the three vaccines which could pertain to monkeypox, two of them. Monkeypox is just related to smallpox. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you could take two of those that are for smallpox. There is one that has been developed specifically for monkeypox, and that's probably what Canada is stocking up on, and then administer that to whomever, right? So the I think the sales machine, the pharmaceutical sales machine is fine. And as some of the listeners know, since 1986, if your child is vaccinated and is injured by a vaccine, the pharmaceutical company is not liable. That's also not coincidentally the time when the number of childhood vaccinations increased insanely. So I, 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 don't, I don't see it needing to be a new epidemic of any kind for anyone's purposes, particularly. We're also coming up on summer when crime. Spikes, and it seems that the political messaging is going to surround reducing what are called gun deaths, right? Kind of generically, never specifying who's shooting which guns, under what legal <laughs> structure or illegal structure.
1: If it's a young white male who's been groomed by the FBI to do it for them, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
0: that, that does happen. Or we'll take a Hispanic shooter if we need to. He can be he can be lightened up on mm-hmm, CNN for mm-hmm. his photo. So I, I just, I don't see monkeypox, monkeypox is not the immediate concern, I think, either for the listeners or needs to be that that gas and food are, and because of gas, food needs to be, or because of diesel more specifically, mm-hmm. Yeah. food needs to be, yeah.
1: So what about violent events though, in terms of uh, gun-related violence, they are, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's been a lot. You know, I'm not going to be your anti-Second Amendment guy here at all. I'm not going to blame the gun. I think there has been – I saw a video uh, two days ago of a woman getting hit with a car by some crazy guy in in England. Uh, That happened in Wisconsin uh, last Christmas. So anything can be used for violence by those who want to do violence. But there has been a lot of shooting going on. It's like it's the Wild West in our cities right now. It's really something.
0: Yeah. So this – I maybe this lens that i'm going to present here will be helpful to the listeners you have two periods in american history relatively recent history where violent crime including shootings of all kinds all shootings being a bigger category than homicides right and and shootings not necessarily being mass shootings because plenty of people get shot and are wounded and survive and are actually fine also little known part of american criminology i suppose those two periods are the early 1990s nationwide, and then the early 2000s, especially in New York City. And the difference there is that gun violence is treated in both cases. This is where you get the, the famous Bill Clinton saying about super predators, young black men on the streets of our cities are super predators. Okay, that's that's something that they've had to sort of live down. But in 1993, that was just standard standard rhetoric in both parties. Joe Biden was saying a lot of the same stuff 20 years after he was against busing, you know, to integrate public schools. So there's that. And then there's the early 2000s in New York when they adopt this, basically, we're going to prosecute antisocial behavior. And crucially for gun violence, we're going to do stop and frisk. So we're not going to go after New York City, I mean, has very stringent gun laws and very low levels of personal gun ownership, but. No one contemplated necessarily like oh we need to we need to further tighten gun laws, which is a big difference from twenty twenty two where even places like California and New York that have extremely tight gun laws are trying to further tighten them i mean on a state level, not to speak of what Democrats are doing nationally so they don't try to do that. they do stop and frisk the issue here I think really has to do with political constituencies that's the that's the lens that I find most helpful in explaining this, right because yeah, cynicism about the Constitution, a disinterest in our history, a disinterest in our heritage of hunting or of personal protection or the reasons for that or the meaning of the term militia in the Second Amendment. We shouldn't be surprised by any of that. What is different between the early 90s, early 2000s and today is that we are not treating gun violence as a question of either, as we talked about in the last episode, specific to mass shootings as an issue of medication and what is called mental health, I would call spiritual sickness, mm. right? It's not merely mental. It's not merely biochemical. It is those things, but it's a spiritual sickness that especially young men deal with even before they maybe get on some discord channel with a federal agent. And then suddenly a guy that works a part-time job has a couple multi-thousand-dollar rifles in his possession. We talked about that last time. In addition to that, much more commonly in a place like Philadelphia, Chicago, et cetera, is going to be generally young black men, almost always. And they're not in possession of legal firearms. So you have have two options here. And obviously, Republicans have two options, because Republicans can always choose to side with Democrats against their own constituency, or they can choose to defend their own constituency, which in this case would be the middle and working class people who don't have armed guards like Bill Gates does. So they want to defend themselves. In addition to that, they're hunters, they're just firearms enthusiasts, whatever else. But those are the people who need to defend themselves. Obviously, the upper classes don't need to defend themselves. Someone else will. So they're going to be fine. That's why they can support gun control. If you look at this as a political constituency thing, the Democrats really only have one option. Because if they say, well, what we need to do is implement stop and frisk. Let's say the mayor of Philadelphia wants to do that, or Lori Lightfoot wants to do that in Chicago. That has a proven record of... Stopping these kind of random incidents of violence, most of which people outside these situations have no knowledge of. Like, how how many Americans are aware of how many people get shot at gravesides? Okay. How many Americans are aware of the fact that I just related earlier that lots of people get shot, usually at a party, so called, and survive? Right. They don't know that. Right. It's just guns, gun deaths. Okay. And they're not aware probably of the extreme spike since two years ago, almost to the month since two years ago, the George Floyd riots, the extreme spike in blacks being shot by other, by other blacks, right? They don't, they don't know that nobody knows that because we're not really allowed to talk honestly about when issues are specific to, especially racial political constituencies. Okay. So If Black Americans vote overwhelmingly for Democrats, Democrats don't have an option anymore, as they did in the early 90s, of saying we need to treat this as a crime problem. Their option here is to criminalize a constituency that isn't their own, which would be middle and lower class gun owners who are going to be the people hurt by firearms confiscation. Republicans have the option of either siding with the Democrats or siding with their own constituency. And thus, the only real debate about gun control currently is happening inside the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the degree that it is, but that's why that reality is what it is, because Democrats can't have that debate, certainly not since George Floyd, and and not for a long time. So I see that I see gun control in America as not really an issue about Guns. Uh, To be honest with you, I see it as an issue of a combination of sickness, however you want to frame that, sickness, political constituencies, and whether or not you can vote to take away your own right to self-protection.
1: Right. Yeah, I I see the Second Amendment largely as a symbolic reality. That Mm -hmm. is, uh, to, to lose it is to accept a regime a regime yeah. form of government. And and right. really as I do with whether we could actually fight back or not, it's simply the regime is going to say we're a regime and we're going to say okay. And and once we've done that then that's what that is. But as long as we have the second amendment, it's not that yet. And right. they're they're Argumentation for this and the kind of the, the mushy middle or even the rhino republican kind of bending on this just well and we, we've talked this way anyway we kind of know that's the future on some level here right. anyway right, right? yeah um, but it isn't that doesn't make it any more heartening as a citizen to to watch the government uh, have a color revolution uh, change its identity or its, uh, its political formula uh, away from the rugged independent self-preservationism that sort of like founded the country into the the nanny state you'll be safe because we say so don't worry ignore the guy getting shot next door um city dwellers that we have now Now go go back and play some video games smoke a little
0: (laughs) and it's i mean it it, the gun control discussion especially in major cities is such a such a, a clear example of the basic dishonesty in which our regime or its or its hangers on or its aspirants engage, because they're not able to to say to ask very clearly. So as we record this, I, I want to say it was three dead 11 shot 11 wounded in Philadelphia the past, this past weekend, no one is, is actually asking are those NRA members, you know, uh, is this a guy that owns too many AR 15s in his suburban home? You know, they're not, they're not, we're not, we're not really being specific about this. We're not being clear about this. And it is the dishonesty goes as deep as the definition of the word science, because a certain openness to reality, wherever it's truths lead you is the hallmark of honesty, and there is such a basic dishonesty in american public discourse it makes it, it it makes it easy to be cynical it also makes it relatively difficult to engage it requires all of one's creative powers just to speak publicly let alone to affect anything because you have to think through how to remain honest when no one else is being honest because how how am i supposed to, i mean i can't walk into a meeting with the district attorney for Philadelphia and say, you know, it's it's young black men shooting illegal guns. I'm white, so I used the black word, it's supposed to be a capitalized B, and my right to speak is effectively already taken away implicitly by the fact that I'm not black, right? So because we, for instance, apparently cherish individual rights including the right to life as well as the right to self-defense in the United States of America, but functionally What we cherish are the self-images of various political constituencies that we're not violent, we're not a problem, we don't have a problem, the problem is the NRA, or we cherish the right of certain people to be above criticism, such as Anthony Fauci or Larry Krasner, the DA in Philadelphia or whoever else, it makes it nearly impossible to say anything that would be honest that would actually deal with the problem in the way that Manhattan went from being kind of a hellscape in the 1980s to being somewhere that Mike Pence can come visit Times Square with his family from Indiana, and he had an Applebee's, (laughs) okay? Now, there's something kitschy about that, but that would be unimaginable in like 1983 in Manhattan. Hmm. And Times Square at the time was full of, you know, kind of porno theaters and all kinds of very shady stuff. And it's completely different 20 years later. The way that you affect those kinds of changes is by affecting how discourse functions. And we can't really be honest about crime in the United States. We can't talk about illegal guns. So we really can't talk about what is occurring. In our cities and that makes it almost impossible to fix the problem
1: right because the entire debate in the republican party is about legal guns and that's being foisted upon them by being the public discourse of the entire argument and the issue in almost all cases is illegal guns now the uh the shooter in uvalde uh did buy that gun legally so right. so the story goes, um, how he got in, how long the cops waited, how the parents were stopped, how other types uh-huh. of officers were stopped from getting in there. I mean, that's a whole other thing. But right. um, to kind of – I don't know if we can blend this. Chicago, uh, near where I live, has yeah. some of the most stringent gun laws in the country and some of the worst gun violence in the country. Right. And when I mentioned that somewhere recently, uh, the comment was brought up, well, those guns aren't from inside Chicago. They're being brought in from outside. Implying like Indiana, like, like it's all yeah. it's all Indiana's fault or something, right? And I'm like, okay, and and, and then like, uh, hard right, hello immigration, hello border control, hello yeah. complete flooding of the country by people that we're just not tracking.
0: Hey, who knows? Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and so so we're gonna pass a bunch of gun laws to stop you, citizen, from owning a gun. Meanwhile, there's gonna be guns, and again, lawbreakers yeah. are are what we are made to be. It would seem in this current zeitgeist.
0: There's a there's always this sort of missing middle portion. Where they'll take two facts and there's a third fact that actually relates those two to each other, but they won't provide you with that third fact that connects things. So, for instance, they'll tell you that a lot of Hispanic children died in Uvalde, Texas, or they'll say Brown specifically, right? Because Uvalde is like overwhelmingly Hispanic as far as I know. That's the reason for the missing middle fact here. The other fact that they do give you is that the police response was atrocious in various ways, right? Uh, mm-hmm. stopping, stopping parents from their natural instinct to protect their children. Okay. The missing middle fact they give you, and, and so that's going to be used as an example of what? The police, especially, remember 2020, local police departments are racist mm-hmm. and, and hate brown and black bodies. They want to do violence to brown bodies. <laughs> missing middle fact is Uvalde, Texas's government, including its police force, is overwhelmingly Hispanic. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> So they don't, they 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 never give you the missing middle fact. And they're certainly not going to tell you that the Border Patrol agent, Border Patrol, also majority Hispanic, they're not going to tell you that the Border Patrol agent who shot the shooter in Evalde was white. Of <laughs> course, they're not going to tell you that. It doesn't really have to do with why he shot the guy. I mean, like, he wasn't like, well, I'm white, so I will save you all. He shot the guy because he was shooting people, right? But of course they're not going to tell you that because that would give you a sense that, like, Maybe white people aren't evil or maybe like not every problem can be reduced to a racial frame. I don't know. So this, this is something you see going on all over the place. And this is one of the, I think, chief methods of dishonesty. It's not so much that they lie blatantly all of the time. They do, I think, do that sometimes. What they usually do is there are probably five things you should know, and then you should be able to have enough time away from like screen God to think through how those five things are connected, they're going to give you through screen God, just two of those five things over and over and over and over again. So the only connection that your brain can forge is between those two things that they gave you in the way that they told you they were connected.
1: Right. And in the meantime, we haven't even talked about the, the pride month and the trans push and, and, uh, the, oh, uh, what, the Matt Walsh blog releasing of the "What Is Woman" video, you know, yeah. seventy thousand dollars for every one of these twelve-year-old girls that wants to have the surgeries, you know, yeah. and the kind of financial incentive that is going on behind big pharma and all of this. Um, there's a lot to be distracted with right now, while, as you point out, uh, the gas prices continue to rise. This is something that the administration looks like they are really a fan of, even though they keep saying they're not it's it's right. really hard to to uh, line up their words with their actions so again, we're back to that basic dishonesty thing uh, we're not at a place where the food is off the shelves yet or, or completely uh insurmountable and we may not get to a place where the the stores are are entirely empty, although yeah. there was another uh, processing plant that I heard about burning down again this week it's just like, well, this is you know, I, I, I <laughs> that's
0: really something it really, yeah. <laughs> it really is.
1: You know, I, I retweeted one of these at some point, it was a little while back and someone comes back and this is just a normal person. I don't think it was a trope. It's like you really believe there's people doing this on purpose. I'm like, I don't care if they're doing it on purpose or not. This is stunning. It is just stunning. How yeah. consistent this is uh, t- to the level of, you, you would almost think that there's some sort of, uh, well, never mind. I'm not going to say that. Uh, it, it is too easy to draw a conspiracy theory from the facts.
0: You're just a student of the conspiracies, Jonathan. You're not a conspiracy theorist. Yes.
1: Well, I, I, <laughs> what, what I am is a strategic board game player and I know when I'm being maneuvered into a bad position.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're all your, all your guys are being backed into the Kamchatka peninsula. It, you know, it's
1: getting rough. It's getting <laughs> rough. And, and yeah. So all right. Uh, can we segue from this into world population oh, yeah. yeah, especially here.
0: from burning food processing plants. Well, it's, sure. I mean,
1: I guess there's one more piece I haven't mentioned sure. that continues to be a sub-theme in the news that I follow, which is never mainstream, and so it's really hard to point people to this, but the ongoing... Vaccine injury reality, the number of heart attacks amongst the 40 to 60-year-old uh, uh, contingent demographic right now, including fairly famous people, usually not the most famous, but but some of them, sports players specifically, you know, people who are running marathons and dropping dead at the finish line, uh, you know, it, it, the a uh, number of children with the hepatitis thing that's coming up now for yeah, them. Uh, right. And then while they, they continue to push third and fourth and fifth vaccine shots for the, for the COVID there's people that are still off on that right there. Uh, All cars mortality last year and this year, just hockey stick is the word used, use, you know, skyrocketing uh, mm-hmm. compared to what it yeah. was. Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, uh, Economy, lack of good workers, lack of jobs, uh, or or lack of those to fill the jobs, I should say. There's jobs, people. There's high, there's four higher sale, ugh, there's four higher signs all over Rockford. Everywhere, a job. yeah, yeah, everywhere. Um, but there are not there are not people. So I was concerned about demographics. I don't know, 10 years ago, I think I gave a talk at the at the LCMSU event uh, based upon a, a movie, a documentary I watched called The Demographic Bomb, which pointed out that the, the replacement rates of Western civilization are effectively underwater and that by 2050, we're going to be in a, a sort of free fall that will be unable to be recovered from because you can't go back and like have more kids and you can only have kids at a certain pace so once you hit the peak and drop again like you've got a 100 years 150 years where you're gonna keep free falling and at that point the 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 rats that we need to run in the wheels to turn the gears of civilization—they're not going to be enough rats, and it's really going to start coming down. So it, it looks like we're just starting that game early and like right. taking ourselves out for the fun of it. So again, you know, backed into where would you say I was backed into in the in the global was that risk? I don't know what game you were referring. Kamchatka
0: to. Peninsula, yeah, that's risk. That's risk. That's, yeah, that's one of the few I know. So
1: just take South America, man, go from there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be so bad. The demographic freefall thing is. Unprecedented in the past three centuries, certainly for, let's say, industrialized societies. So the West, but also a place like Japan, to some degree, China, maybe India, Brazil. It reverses what has been the general trend since roughly the middle of the 17th century, which is an enormous increase by everyone's estimates from whatever baseline you thought humanity was at in, say, 1650 that we are, especially in the wealthiest countries, which historically had relatively speaking for the past 200 years, relatively speaking low, but let's say sustainable birth rates. So France's birth rate has been pretty low since about the middle of the 19th century. There are all kinds of speculations about that and and thoughts about the reasons for that. France has been markedly low among Western countries for a long time. nonetheless, their population has continued to expand. So the idea that populations are just dropping rapidly is unusual. One instance of this that I have discussed on the show, but I, I can't, you know, do a whole show about this because it simply is not really understood is the enormous drop between the estimated slave population of the American South before the Civil War and then the Black population both in the South and in the North that is throughout the United States after the war. Just enormous numbers of people, as it were, missing. What happened to them? How did they die? Nobody knows. Similar situations I think are occurring to all racial demographics in the United States at this point. There are population increases in, say, you know, the number of Congolese coming over the Mexican border, but nobody else is increasing all that much. Causes of death appear to vary widely by race and age and and some other factors, but everyone is doing worse. This is very unusual. (laughs) This is very strange. And it's not even being hidden statistically, right? You referred to excess deaths, right? That's a, that's a statistically specific measurement of what's going on now compared to a general average. So insurance companies can only hide so much, and they're not trying to hide it. What is being hidden is any sense of causation. So even where some specific outcropping is happening, I, I see different, let's say, public-facing medical and scientific authorities noticing that children are dying of hepatitis, but they, they're presenting the options as, does this have some cause, i.e. maybe it has to do with blood diseases and blood clots mm, or- Climate change. Yeah, climate change. Yeah, they're climate, they're climate sufferers, I guess. Or is this just something that we're only now noticing? Yeah, yeah, probably because growing up, I mean, we all knew like, you know, 14 kids that died of hepatitis, right? I mean, that's just like something that happens in America. So what, again, that's an example of, they're going to give you two facts and they're not going to give you the other three. So you kind of have to find the three for yourself. So if you can, right. So what I, I think that what is really unusual about right now, among many other things is, the obvious medical suffering that people are going through anecdotally, we find a lot of this connected to vaccination, but obviously officially we're not going to find that
1: can I can I jump in on that because go what ahead yeah. I, what I've noticed um, just in terms of care that I give is that the the fact that the pharmaceutical industry was capable of duping so many people into Gene therapy into wearing magic talismans to prevent breathing that that won't work was only possible because of a certain level of of click were follow the bullet points don't think approach to medical provision, and so what what I'm seeing then now is that most people who are going in for anything, yeah, are just getting very poor care because everyone's like a C student. Or worse, it, nobody really knows what they're doing, and they were just glad to graduate and go get their job now. And yeah. so they are no longer pursuing a understanding of the medical science. Uh, they are pursuing an application of the information that they memorized. Yeah. Yeah. And the result of this, when it combines with the decrease in pe- – like the people who quit because they wouldn't get inoculated were the people yeah. who cared. They're people who read right? And so right. now you got a decrease in those who are the high, high performers. The whole system is just uh, g- getting worse. So people that are going in for what used to be routine things are just not getting care. It's not yes. even getting taken care yes. of at all.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that is shocking to me, right? That is shocking to me because previously, I mean, it was like, and I mean, I, I have had these experiences. I mean, my, one of my children had a kind of growth defect in his blood vessel this is years ago now maybe 7 years ago that would have hurt his finger permanently and it had to get fixed and everyone we talked to and everyone we dealt with was wonderful and extremely capable and loving and and took time with us and everything and you know the surgeon prayed with us he was so happy we were christians all this kind of thing that that is an idea about what medicine is for that is whatever specialization, obviously the person has is holistic. That is that the person is holistically intelligent, holistically caring, and at least holistically thinking, if not holistically capable, he can't do everything, but he has some sense of what else may need to be done. Right. So he's not just going to work on you as sort of a biochemical playground. He's also going to treat you like you're a person. This surgeon treated us like we, we were we had souls, we were Christians. And that is a loss that especially people like Ray Pete have been talking about in science broadly and medicine specifically for a long time, is the capacity to think holistically and therefore to, especially when you're dealing with a human being, to realize that there's a lot more going on than you understand. And that therefore all of your powers have to be called to the front right to help this person to deal with his problems to treat him as best you possibly can to do no harm but also to do him good and if that's not done if the person is more like a technician right and so i mean horror stories just from you know very close family involve you know i have cancer but i'm in this ward at this really prestigious place where my cancer is supposed to be fixed basically automatically by virtue of the prestige and the Ivy league medical school degrees of the doctors, but they are so busy and so distant that they talk to you for two minutes and then literally run away from you Mm -hmm. in order to see another patient because they're getting paid based on how many people they consult that day. So this is this is a kind of a collapse that maybe was was long in coming maybe has something to do with how we educate people to care for others or or we fail to but also has to do yeah with a with what kind of human quality is actually attracted to that profession to that job whatever and when and if that's lacking then that human being i mean <laughs> even on a, even on a simply chemical level you know he he might actually be harmed long-term by the stress of this that will cause all kinds of disruption in his body and his spirit, even if this specific problem is going to be taken care of maybe through this procedure that we're going to go through with. But even those procedures, I think I've seen this, I, what, I, what I think you're seeing too Even those things are just not working the way
1: they, Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: the way they did. I mean, that's just, I mean, just kind of basic stuff is not happening the right way. Big mistakes are being made.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're all getting dumber. And we've talked about the smart device problem before, and I don't want to, correlation is not causation. And I think things are complex enough that not anything is caused by one thing. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the amount of life that people want to spend on the screen has got to play a role in our capacity to high function in high stress environments that require holistic thinking, Uh, especially then if you're also at the same time, believing the myth that having these tools can make you do more and more than you could have done, say with paper and pencil. And so you're trying to overload overclock your productivity as a doctor while trying to read while scrolling Twitter, while seeing more patients while also listening to the Big Pharma pitches, which are going to be more winsome now because you do yeah. need that vacation down in the Bahamas paid for somehow. And so it all just becomes, um, uh, well, uh, barbaric. Barbaric. And it, one of the things that that I, I don't know, I'm going to have trouble getting this one out, but like yeah. I've read through Kings and Chronicles a couple of times in the last year trying to... Learn the lore. I I really, Mm -hmm. I think I've said this before that I ashamed myself over realizing I knew more about, you know, uh, Dole Golder than I do about uh, Ahijah, right? And it's kind of like, well, Jonathan, maybe you should work on this. Um, But, you know, while doing that and, and focusing on Proverbs, it really kind of opened my thinking into this idea of generational rise and fall in faith the collapse of a civilization you can watch in a 40-year period the same group of people go from being very faithful to very unfaithful and the natural result of that going from being very i don't want to say successful as in winning but very uh, stable um uh, very uh, what is here will remain to your enemies are now just completely able to triumph over you yeah. and then trying to apply this to the baby boom generation as a two generations worth of life really uh, the the amount of time that this this group has lived and thinking about what they would have put up with in the 60s or 70s even though there was a lot of crazy stuff going on the people who are today in their 70s and 80s what their thoughts would have been what they would have said was crazy what they would have thought and done versus now and again, coming out of this is just how ridiculously mm-hmm. malleable the human is that we yeah. don't, we don't even realize how quick as a group, our soul can change from one type of, uh, expectation, world uh, right. worldview yeah. climate. And I don't mean, you know, world climate, I mean, our, our spiritual climate to another. Uh, and then that has caused me to then really second guess and ask for myself, I mean, I'm, I'm just barely 40. Like, I got another 40, 50 years, maybe, I mean, God willing, whatever. But like, if I have another 40 years, like, there is no guaranteeing I believe today what I believed today then. And that's the lesson out of this for me, is that if I'm not guarding what I think, then there's a good chance I won't think it anymore. And as a Christian, that becomes explicitly important.
0: Yeah, that that automatism about the soul that presumes that if you just go through certain steps, things will be taken care of is treating human beings as if they are machines, in this case, spiritual machines. And thus, for a long time in the church, we have seen church set up this way, that if you just have certain activities or certain information communicated in a prescribed way, that the problem will take care of itself. It is a refusal to think about human beings holistically and therefore to understand all the different facets that pertain to individual souls, let alone groups of people, congregations, whatever. When you don't think holistically, you will think mechanistically because in narrowing things down, you will increase your level of control and then you will be completely surprised. When your bread making machine is unable to produce bananas, even though you intended to produce bananas, because you didn't understand that you can't make bananas using a bread making machine, but you had a certain solution that you were applying a certain mechanistic process. And that's what people are doing. Not only doctors, as we talked about a few minutes ago, uh, pastors, parents, teachers, as we talked about in the kid prison series, all of those problems are problems, I think, largely because of a refusal to accept that each individual human being is a unique creation of God. And therefore, there is always about him something that is more mysterious than you can control. If you are being honest, we are not being honest, I think. We are being dishonest. Or we are at the very least being stupid, Mm. incapable of seeing what more is there and therefore really how little we have control over. We also don't design the processes that we use to cure people, either their bodies or their souls, in ways that respect that more, that mysterious element to a human being, that he is body and soul, and that God is nearer to him than his own heart. If we don't respect those things, we will end up creating problems we did not envision. This is why I think, Not only because of our total fertility rate, but also because of processes that we have created for attracting people, largely attracting, but also retaining people in church, um, among which were massive changes in how we worshipped and how we preached and how we taught or really didn't teach Christianity over the past 50 or 60 years, the, the adult lifetime of the baby boom generation because of those things, we have produced a generation successive to them that is less Christian than any other that we've seen before in the United States. So we will have to return to holistic thinking about the body, but also especially about the soul, if we're going to have a future at all. If we don't, we are going to end up with the same results that the current generation now may be Passing from <laughs> passing from control, uh, maybe passing from this earth. Maybe the two things have to come at the same time for them. But once they do, we don't want to repeat the same mistakes that have generally been made in almost every facet of our lives by treating people as if they are anything less than the cosmic mysteries and gifts that they are.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and again, there we, I think some of that comes from the. Godlike trust we have given over to the the good people on the other side of the screen, just from the start. NBC, ABC, like, well, they're yeah. they're not us, but they're they're good like us, and so they're not going to lie to us. So, um, pushing us back into your your list, though. Uh, yes, sir. Quigley, you wanted to bring up Quigley today.
0: I want to bring up Quigley because if the listeners haven't picked up a copy of Tragedy and Hope, it's always worth it. There's always something in there you didn't know before maybe your interest in the history of Chinese agriculture was a little less than it's been in recent years and he can renew it for you. But the reason I want to bring him up today is because the things that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, combining discussion of farming with discussion of food, because the two things are so deeply related to each other and related to what I see as our biggest upcoming challenge. Quigley doesn't really think about human beings terribly often on an individual or everyday level. And that's fine. That's necessary sometimes. What it causes him to miss though, is the impact on human culture of that hockey stick reality of there simply being vastly more human beings who are vastly more urbanized after 1650 than before. And in the case of the United States, especially after 1900 than before. And that's really just because when Quigley thinks about human beings, he thinks about them as constituent parts of economic systems, political systems, religious systems, okay? He doesn't think about them really all that individually, which is also fine. There's just a limitation to that way of thinking. And I'm completely fine with saying that, and we've talked about this before, you and I have, about the role of the great man in Thomas Carlyle's phrase in history. I think that it is enormous. From a Christian point of view, it is simply the recognition that Cyrus matters more than any Persian or any Israelite in his lifetime. That's all. And that's why he's called in Isaiah, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ Right at that time and for that place. So great men are important and great Not meaning, you know, a moral evaluation, but a certain magnificence of being, power, authority, charisma, whatever attributes you want to give to somebody or that he possesses. Nonetheless, it is both interesting and also profitable to think about how everyday people live. And. Our audience is sort of divided between <laughs> people very interested in great men and people very interested in how everyday people lived and how they thus in this everyday life can live. And that's fine. That's, that's pretty much any human group you could possibly talk to or gather. So that's fine. So I want to give a little bit to everybody. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be doing a lot more of the everyday life stuff. And the reason that I began to think about this was because I noticed that when Quigley talked about the Great Depression, which would be kind of one of the next natural place to go in our narrative, the run-up to it, and then the depression itself, he didn't really talk about something that I see lots of people talking about recently, which is how people survived the Great Depression. And I'm, I'm very interested in that. We will be looking at that later on in the year through especially the experience of the Okies. Who, who are called, because of their migration out of the Dust Bowl into California, especially the Central Valley of California, some people are, some academics, you know, let's be honest, are calling them climate refugees, right? <laughs> so it'll be kind of a fun way to look at a lot of things we've talked about this year. But I see people saying, well, you know, your great grandma or your grandma survived the great depression because she knew how to can food or she knew how to do this or, or she did that. And that's all true. The question you have to ask yourself is why do you have no idea how to can food? Or why did you have to learn it from a book? Or why did you have to learn how to garden from YouTube videos or whatever? Like, where did that all go? And why did that change? So that's, that's what we want to do. Quigley doesn't really do that because he's never really doing history from, let's say from below. He's always doing it from the top down, which explains some things, but not everything. And certainly not everything the listeners are interested in.
1: You got me here uh, where I want to bring up something I was going to say till next time, which is that I've been reading a, a book called The Populist Delusion by Parvini. Are you familiar with this? No. Oh, well he he brings up some of your favorite names um and uh he is focused on largely I would call it the neo-machiavellian school of political theory mm-hmm. as a way of understanding uh, the current zeitgeist. Anyway, um he uh and I'm I'm trying to remember now which chapter was is under Pareto? Yes, under Pareto's thought, the idea that there are foxes and there are lions and that uh political discourse exists as as a tension between the two and the foxes tend to be on top because they're the creative thinkers they're the they're the ones who need to manage whereas the lions do kind of the managed work Um, but there comes points where the foxes become so self-serving that they start to exclude other foxes from their midst and then those (laughs) will inspire the lions to rise up right Um, and it just you're, you're talking about from below and from above Kind of got me thinking about the lions are a little more on the from below uh, Very straightforward, they're going to do what they do um, Whereas the foxes are trying to kind of tinker with and trick and hide from uh, the top I don't know if you're familiar with any of those names I dropped Mosca is one of the other names he talks about yeah. quite a bit Yeah,
0: definitely, yeah, uh, Mosca, Pareto um, Does he talk about Burnham too? Uh, Burnham yes, is... Burnham's coming okay.
1: Burnham's coming So he yeah. went from Pareto into, I just finished the chapter on Mikkels first
0: Okay. Because yeah, because Burnham is self-consciously Machiavellian. And the thinking there, and here, here's a big difference in how I think about history, certainly, but I'm not, I'm not new at all in this versus how Quigley thinks about history. Quigley is, let's say, a systematizer. That is, he wants to take events and then drill down to what he understands as their essence. There's always a process of abstraction in that. And there's also, I think, something that you find, you find it in academics for very obvious reasons, but you find it in plenty of other people too, which is a sense that somehow the major thing in life is to understand.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Rather than the way that I think about what's happening with history and certainly the way that Machiavelli puts his political philosophy stop me if you've heard this before, puts his political philosophy inside a historical narrative (laughs) about the Roman Republic and the discourses or the commentary on the discourses of Livy is because that's a sense that you do not have control over everything and you don't need to extract some perfect essence from events because the point of life is not merely to understand that it like maybe in a glib way to say like as if the whole point of life is to have the best take or to write the best book. Hmm. The the point of life is to act within the situation in which you are put. And Machiavelli himself is a perfect example of this because his books are occasioned by political necessity or political fortune. They're not there simply because Machiavelli, when he was 20, decided he was going to write two earth-shaking political science texts. No. So if the point of life is to act within whatever given sphere that you have, rather than simply to have the best take on what other people have done, then you don't need to have some kind of overarching theory of everything, right? In the way that Quigley tries to present modern history as really the history of international finance. Similarly, I don't think you have to have a theory about why every fox is a fox or got to be a fox. I like that dichotomy. I like that distinction. That's also a distinction between, under, between I think, people who set out to study great men and thus think that through their study, they have become great men versus is that how
1: we do it? I thought that's how it happened.
0: <laughs> versus people that actually are great men are almost never, as it were, dedicated to studying great men. Now, let me just qualify that. You'll find with most, let's say, major world figures, they have a very deep knowledge, especially of history. This is the case with Alexander. This is the case with Napoleon. This is the case with, you know, lots of different historical figures throughout human history. They have a deep knowledge of history. I think that's also one of the reasons that God commissions Israelites to write down their own history is for a grasp, uh, of what all of this has been, but why does that happen? It is for the purpose of action, right? I mean, you're not, you're not going to read Kings just so you can say, I would have done it better, <laughs> you know, or like, Let's have a David Day. Like it's so great. David was so great. Isn't that wonderful? You know.
1: I just want. I just wish we had Uman and Thuram still, man. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know why they didn't ask. It's like, look, ask. Just use it every time. I don't get it. Anyway,
0: well, that's why. Good. That's why Joseph Smith got them back. So. Oh yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I, think that that is a that's that's a major distinction between certainly my my philosophy and the philosophy of of Quigley. That is Quigley's thought that is behind. What he writes and the way he writes, and and that that is a basic distinction that you will find in many 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 places, is between those for whom thought is primary and those for whom action itself is primary.
1: That seems to be a, a criticism that Pervini in the populist delusion and others might know him as academic agent. That's his online persona, Pervini. Um, a criticism he seems to have of these Italian. Uh, theorists is that they are heavy on the theorizing, but that's, (laughs) that's where he's building toward something more and kind of asking, um, you know, what does it mean for us here? And I think that, uh, leaning into, uh, to act according to reality is the goal. It's not just to have some, some great thought, but it is to be able to be real as, as much as possible Um, In that, and just for the sake of time and and kind of pushing us here, we'll come back to this next week a little bit. Um, And I think we touched on this, too, so we can probably go through this quicker. We did this a couple episodes ago, recognizing that urbanization is a function of improved agriculture, that cities are only possible when you have a functioning countryside.
0: Right. And that is really key to understanding a statistic that I keep bringing up, but I don't think that enough people think about this. Enough, which is the relatively very high fragility of any society or let's say nation that depends for its existence on a very small percentage of food producers. So in the United States, I believe at this point, it's roughly 0.6% of Americans are farmers. Now we'll go probably next week more into But what are they doing exactly? Like, what are they raising?
1: There's a lot of ethanol out there right now.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so how does that actually work? That's its own question. But the statistic that I keep bringing up is the tip in our 1920 census into a majority, a slim majority in 1920, always increasing, a majority urbanized society. This is something that gets brought up by demographers, brought up at Davos, brought up in many places and by many people that we are looking at an increasingly urbanized world. That is, depending on your understanding of cities, maybe philosophically or theologically, either terrifying, okay, or at the very least, that is a cause for worry about how those people are going to be fed. Because if you look at history, certainly prior to roughly the middle of the 17th century, in the West, especially, you have very few cities of anything like the scale that we have today with regularity, where, you know, just take all the cities in the United States and Canada that have major professional sports franchises, or take all the cities of similar size, there's going to be a much larger number from China, or Japan, or whatever, right? How do those how do those people get sustained? And I think that one of the reasons that Quigley is wrong, okay, in not doing enough history from below is that he does not think of biology as a primary or even secondary or maybe even tertiary subject of interest. So everyone's willing to say, hey, there's a big agricultural revolution that kicks off urban life in the ancient Near East and in ancient Mesopotamia and the Levant, right? what we now sort of call the Middle East, but that also includes Turkey and whatever, okay? So everyone's willing to say that, great. Grain is domesticated. They figure out how to store it, how to keep it. You can do so much more. You're gonna have energy throughout the year. Human beings are not gonna be as seasonal as they are in their level of activity because they're gonna be able to sort of power themselves biologically constantly and we can store things and we can plan and this just enables so many other things. No one really thinks about modern history in the same way as having a, a simply biological basis. But this is something that I think you think about, you just don't, you're not thinking about it maybe in terms of, well, where it may be in terms of food or agriculture is if you think about, okay, here's how people generally look in a photograph from 1922. And here's how people of the exact same age generally look in a photograph from 2022. So let's just, let's take like a high school photo of five guys. What do they look like in 1922? Well, they might be wearing suits in the photo, right? They're going to have jawlines that are recognizable. They're going to be probably a healthy body weight. If anything is wrong with them physically because of their food intake, it's probably going to be that they're a little undernourished. Okay. Possibly, right? They're probably going to be shorter than the people in 2022, but the people in 2022, if they're taller, are going to have lots of fat deposits that people in 1922 are statistically highly unlikely to have. Their jawlines are not going to be as distinct. They might be looking at the ground more because they spend relatively little, certainly relative to 1922, relatively little time interacting with other human beings directly they're going to be wearing much different clothing. It's going to be really kind of unpredictable what clothing they're wearing and it's going to hang differently. The bottoms. On their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got me. It's not unpredictable at all, <laughs> but the, those kinds of comparisons, are comparisons about maybe how, do they, how much time do these spend? These people spend outside, what kinds of food are they eating? What's in their food. They're also comparisons. They're basically biological comparisons. And when, we don't think about human history as having a biological and by extension, an agricultural basis. I think that we're really not explaining where things come from or where people come from. It's also why it's really easy to hide some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier relative to deaths, excess deaths, medical problems, because people think of those things as kind of private matters. They don't think of them as public questions. Like no, no one, maybe, I don't know, I don't read every Blake Masters tweet. Maybe he's doing this. I don't know of any politician that's out there being like, "We, we polyunsaturated fats are like one of the worst things that's ever happened to the, to the West, right? You know I mean, we're, we're talking about Ukraine, we're talking about democracy, we're talking about gas prices. We're not really talking about why we look so drastically different, generally in a negative way from the same five people of the same age in 1922
1: yeah yeah can i jump in i mean yeah. there, there's first off you got your two teams of five and i'm going to put them in kind of the hunger games team oriented now i'm going with the guys <laughs> from the 1920s like just oh yeah gonna, no they're question. just gonna rock it and the other guys are just gonna die and that's that's the most disturbing thing to me that's where the fragility really doubles down on itself it's not just that the systems we rely on is that if we actually have to get into something we're not gonna have the willpower to do it um Oh, and I'm gonna I lost what the other one was. Oh, it's, it had to do with the polyunsaturated. So the the fat documentary, you can get this on Amazon or used to be able to it's it's really a good look at where the push for so called heart healthy products that are not always that heart healthy came from. And the the factoid that I want to pull out of that was that when the United States government, at the behest of the people, began to question tobacco as a and, and big tobacco as a a danger to public health, a true danger to public health, and that they would need to uh, pass laws to regulate tobacco in some way, you know, moving away from the doctor being like, "Hey, smoke some cigarettes; it's good for you," you know, because he's getting paid by big tobacco to do this. At that time, there were two states that were basically financially run by Big Tobacco, two states worth of lobbyist dollars. When it comes to General Mills right now, you're looking at the whole frigging country. Excuse my language. You're looking <laughs> right. at the whole country. So we're in right. a completely different place. And and if you have any idea or any memory, have you ever read about how hard it was to get any laws passed about tobacco when it comes to these non-food foods that are passed off as foods, especially for the right. poor? Um, right. we, we Yeah, they're, they're shilling poison out there is what yeah. they're doing. And right. you know, I, I don't mean to say necessarily that iceberg lettuce is bad for you, but it ain't Good for you. It weighs nothing. Don't pretend like you put that in your body is good for you. It doesn't do anything. It's empty, right? They've tricked you. They've tricked you. Um, we. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, you wanted to, to bring this more connected to it than the idea of city. Versus rural and farming, and then to try to to wrap this hour up, um, rural areas being anti-fragile. I mean, I'm kind of going to say like a soft no on the answer to that question, but yeah. I'm curious if, what yours is.
0: Yeah, I do not believe they're anti-fragile. That is, in in um, Talib's definition, they would they would gain robustness from from difficulty, which is what healthy organisms do. I I don't think that would be the case. That may be the case anywhere with people of any sufficient talent. Good things can come of, come out of chaotic cities too. The issue is I, I do think there is an idealization on the right of rural America that has no relationship to the knowledge of rural America. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about crops and, and food habits and stuff next week. So I don't want to do that now, but just to... To wrap up this this week, I think if you think rural America is a place where everyone knows how to grow on food and they're living healthy lives, or in I mean, in any sense, I, I don't I don't just mean biologically, but but spiritually, educationally, you're wrong. Nowhere in America is doing that well. And just because you feel soulless having grown up in the suburbs or something doesn't mean that being a ruralite is going to heal that or that the people you find in rural areas will heal that. They have been suffering a great deal too. They have been led into many horrible things too and we're all eating horrible things everywhere. <laughs> we all are. If anything, you have much better options in your suburban, you know, shopping areas than rural or actually urban people do. So you're probably actually healthier.
1: <laughs> well, it's so crazy cuz the people who could just grow a couple cows a year grow grow them. You grow them like plants. They raise a couple cows uh, a year. <laughs> don't. Right? They've right. got the land but they don't because the profit is in the corn and then the corn is being shipped off and now you've got the mortgage and the mortgage on the farm implements to grow the corn yep. and uh, and then you have your big I mean, I'm, I live this. You have your big parade for Memorial Day and you go down the street and you throw all the candy at the kids and you just, you're just you just throwing corn syrup back out at the kids. And, and mm-hmm. those kids are, well, again, they don't look like the kids from the 1920s. Um, so we're going to we're going we're gonna to bring this all back again next week. I want to end the day. I mean, you know, sometimes I'll throw these quotes in here. Too. This isn't a happy quote, but I think you all should know about it. There's a gentleman out there named Yval. Noah Harari. He wrote a book called Sapiens. It's had a major influence on a lot of people, including and especially Silicon Valley leaders. He is the lead advisor to Klaus Schwab. And uh, just (laughs) recently he, he said this. He said, the biggest question is what to do with all these useless people. The problem is boredom and what to do with them when they are worthless. My best guess is a combination of drugs and computer games. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.